You're listening to the We Are Libertarians podcast network. Find all of our shows at wearelibertarians.com. Welcome to We Are Libertarians. I'm your host, Chris Spangle. We bring you all of the irreverence modern politics deserves while putting people before political parties. We examine current events from a local libertarian perspective. We examine current events from a libertarian perspective with the goal of leaving you better informed. Please be sure to rate and review us on iTunes and join us on Patreon at wearelibertarians.com. And we are always taking your questions and comments via email at editor at wearelibertarians.com. Now, this is the second in a series that I am really excited about, and uh, it's taken us a a few uh, misstarts to get here, but I'm so glad to have my co-host for this series, Rob Quartel, back. Rob, how are you? I am doing just fine. Thank you. So the virtue— Surviving the torrential rains (laughs) that, that of course, nourish the swamp. Yes, and so you are broadcasting live from Washington, D.C., where you have been for how many years now? Uh, Let's see. It would be— uh, let's see, 1973. How many years is that, Chris? 17, it's 35 years. Uh, let me do the math. All right, carry the three. It's 35, uh, yes, okay. 35 years. Now, it's more than that, right? It, it, well, yeah, because I'm 34. 45 years. 45, 45 years. years. All right. Yeah, uh, right. So Rob has been a fly on the wall to a lot of uh, amazing things over the last you know, four decades, five decades, and we ended up meeting on my trip t- out in February to Washington, D.C., to the Students for Liberty Conference, and we ended up having a great two-hour car ride, having a conversation. And I said, you know, you're giving me a perspective that I want my listeners to have because we don't realize – we don't really know what it's like to live in Washington, D.C., to work in politics, to uh, live in that environment, and I think to have a better discourse – we need to have a better understanding of how things actually work. So I always say you can't change a power structure if you don't understand it. And uh, so Rob has been nice enough to to make himself available, and uh, we'd love to have your questions also. So beyond just what I ask, I'd love your questions at editor at wearelibertarians.com. So if you have any questions about how Washington, D.C. works, then please send it in. Um, Rob, why don't you give us just a you know a a minute-long explanation of your background and just give us kind of a bit of your history as we reintroduce uh, this series, The Swamp Explained. Uh, sure. So, I, you know, if you went to my LinkedIn profile, you would see that I think of myself as uh, really a serial entrepreneur. I've been there at the beginning of a number of federal agencies, the EPA, the Federal Energy Office, which became Homeland Security, the uh, uh, presidential clemency board under President Ford many years ago, involved with a bunch of uh, private sector startups. I've been involved with shipbuilding and and uh, technology. I'm a technologist. Uh, I invest. Uh, I'm still working in many different things, fingers in a couple pies, and I have two companies, one in the U.S. and one in the Middle East. I live six blocks from the White House. Uh, all the, uh, have another house in Virginia on the Chesapeake Bay, so I both uh, live in the swamp and get away uh, down to uh, to the to the bay where real people live. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, I, am, I have a brother in Florida who uh, constantly reminds me that I'm an elitist. Um, <laughs> <laughs> but I also think of myself as someone who believes in uh, dis- disruption. You know, I when I was federal maritime commissioner under uh, President first President Bush, I um, I was pretty well known for having tried to abolish my own agency while I was being paid by it. So um, 
so I think I'm pretty open-minded. I, I uh, tell people I'm a Republican. Uh, I'm from the Republican wing of the Republican Party, and there are not many of us left. Uh, and a, and uh, you know, traditional Burkean conservative, and I've been called an iconoclast. So there, that's me in a nutshell. Uh, yeah, you know. well, well, I like that you're an independent thinker, and it shows that you're willing to come on a libertarian yeah. podcast and and have these conversations. And I appreciate well, the well, time. Well, Chris, you know, among Republicans, being called a libertarian is intended as a soft pejorative. Is it? Um, and, but I, I'm happy to be called that periodically. See, here in, <laughs> here, here in Indiana, it is it, if you're in the Republican Party and somebody calls you a Republican, uh, someone calls you a libertarian, that's that's a great honor. That means you're a true Republican if you're a libertarian uh, here. It's maybe the fur, <laughs> the further west you go, the less pejorative it becomes. <laughs> yeah. Well, they they're well. The other side of that is they they then also assign you that you're quote, liberal on social issues, unquote, and conservative, quote, unquote, on economic issues. So, All right, so let's jump into the first topic, because I've been dying to ask you uh, since our first episode about the Russia investigation and what you think of the Russia investigation. Uh, you know, you probably know several of the players that are involved in this. So let's, let's start at the beginning, and let's start uh, with the presidential campaigns. Right. So... I, I, my guess, my mostly educated guess is that <laughs> most presidential campaigns do have some level of infiltration from other nations. They're trying to turn low-level staffers into informants. That the the game of spycraft that we see through this whole Russia investigation is not necessarily uh, unique to the Trump administration, but something that happens in all presidential campaigns. But with the Trump administration, they were a little more willing to engage because they were inexperienced, let's say. Yeah. Um, what do you think of that theory, and do you think that there was collusion between the Trump administration and Russia? Well, you know, I'm A, I'm not a lawyer, B, I, I'm, uh, I'm, I'm, I'm an observer. Um, so first of all, I think my personal opinion is I do know some of the people. I mean, I, I've known uh, – I first met Paul Manafort probably 45 years ago in the Ford campaign in 1976, and his partners Charlie Black and Roger Stone. and And uh, I have different opinions of each. Uh, Charlie Stone is a fabulous guy, a gentleman, and and Char Char uh, Charlie Black or Roger Stone. I'm sorry, Charlie Black. Yeah, okay. Charlie Black. Yeah, sorry. Um, gentleman. He's a Charlie Black. Yes. Gentleman is not usually assigned to Roger, which is very different like, people. <laughs> And I'm not going to say anything pejorative about anyone else, but uh, but Charlie's a, a true gentleman, a great guy. Uh, uh, anyway, but um, so that was the first, you know, I met them. I would say I, I don't know. I, I think it's going to be hard to prove collusion. I think people who think there is collusion are wishful thinkers, to be perfectly honest. You know, the reality is that um, foreign governments want to know the people in major campaigns. And when I was in the Ford campaign and the Bush campaign and all these others, people from various governments will contact you and and they want to meet with you and understand, quote, what your positions are, unquote. And um, so I don't think it's unusual that the Russians would have done it now. And of course, uh, but how people handle that is different. A Hillary Clinton or a Ford or me, when I was issue director for the Ford camp or anything, we would have made the senior leadership aware and we would have um, 
we would have sat them down with several people, um, and uh, if you know, if if at all, and there would be a process for handling them, and you know, because they, they really, I think everybody's sort of aware. Um, I suspect, and I actually believe that the problem with the Trump campaign is, first of all, none of them thought they were going to win, uh, <laughs> including Paul Manafort when he signed on. Number two. Uh, they they were naivets. I mean, they. I mean, partly they won, partly because they were, because they were willing to go outside the standard process. Um, and you know, I have read that Jared, for example, um, sat down and worked the numbers personally for the um, for the advertising and the markets and all those kinds of things. And he's a smart guy, and I can imagine he did that. Um, if anything, Paul Manafort should have known better. Uh, than to have had that meeting and to have brought in uh, Jared or any other senior guy quite like that this was the uh, meeting, and exposed them to any risk. Yeah, and this was the meeting with the Russian lawyer where su- uh, supposedly it was about adoption in Russia. Right, yeah. and they clearly didn't do their homework before they went in and all that. Now um, now you have the question was who, who knew what before who, who knew, knew what. Well, uh, th- there are people, I think, who think of – Mueller as a guy who's looking for scalps. You know, again, he is a an incredibly well-respected guy. He's like he's a boy scout, you know, with the term. I mean, I was a boy scout. I always think I'm a boy scout, but boy, he's a super boy scout. <laughs> and, I think that's uh, Eagle Scout. <laughs> yeah, scout. Yeah, the scouts now, right? And um he he uh has a, an incredible reputation. Uh he is uh, you know, Giuliani and all these, everybody used to work for him. Chris Christie used to work for him. And so um, I doubt, and I don't think anybody who knows him would believe that he's on a mission to put somebody in jail. He, he was commissioned to figure out, was there um, Russian influence and collusion in, in, the, in the political campaign? It's, and I think he will find there was Russian influence do I think he'll find overt deliberate collusion? I doubt it. Um, and this is where people go to jail, though. It's not on whether it actually happened, but whether they testified falsely. So right. that's where the people have already been caught. And, of course, he's following a classic strategy. You go to weak links, weak lower links in the chain, and you get them to break. Uh, and he's done that with Cohen and you know the whole crowd. And um, it may work. You know, where they got in trouble or may get in trouble is because they're at the bottom. They may think they had to protect someone and that uh, it would never go up the chain and they may have lied or misstated or something else. So I'm I'm going to be very skeptical that they would find collusion. I just think that's really wishful thinking on, you know, a lot of people who hate Trump and the Trump administration. There's a lot of, you know, Jared was quoted as saying before, uh, Jared Kushner, before, um, you know, the president's son-in-law, before um, a group of Republicans that um, they couldn't collude because they didn't know what they were doing. You know, they, they were too incompetent that they won was a fluke, right. basically. So, yeah, and I think that was about as honest a moment as you could possibly get. Um, so, so that's my take. Now, I, I would say, you know, this whole thing and then then alluding that to some uh, uh, overarching manipulation by Putin is, I think, a huge stretch. And, uh, you, you know, you can be appalled by the press conference and and, um, you know, how it was handled and everything else. But it doesn't 
make him a puppet. Sure. Yeah, and I, I think it, it was just classic Trump. There is a weird thing where he he feels like if he says anything bad about Putin or the investigation, then somehow that delegitimizes him as president. Completely. But, totally. But by not doing that, he <clears throat> actually makes everything worse. But I also, and this is my next question, think that no matter what Trump does, he's not going to get a break. Like the media, I think, has gotten yeah. to the point. You asked me beforehand, you know, how are things out in Indiana? How, how are things out in the middle of the country? And thing, people are just obsessed with Trump because the media is obsessed with Trump. And it doesn't, like, the fact that him asking for a Coke, please, was a news story on CNN just shows you that they're just so in tune with every little step that the guy makes, good or bad, and then even twisting asking for a Coke into a negative. That's that's sort of what people in in the middle of the country are talking about. It's like, what is wrong with the media? And I think well, and he he's sort of he he's managed to troll the media to build a new media over top of the existing one. So, um, you, you know, I would I would suggest that ninety eight percent of the people who voted for him in the end, and the true believers, had never heard of Twitter, right? Un, until uh, MSN or CNN or MSNBC or ABC or somebody else said, "Did you see what Trump?" tweeted today and everybody's running around saying what the hell is twitter what is a tweet and then all of a sudden now they're followers so he has managed to create with with the help of the media some here in my swamp and some in the new york swamp um uh a whole new way of communicating with people and and you know obama never got a break from my side of the aisle in his entire eight years and by the conservative media and um and, you know, Trump's not going to get it from the liberal – from the, even the middle-of-the-road media, frankly. Um, and that makes it hard to, to, be dis, you know, to be detached and a little dispassionate about some of this stuff. I don't know that it's a conscious choice, but I was thinking about – someone made the comment to me the other day. Could you imagine the era of Bush with Twitter and social media and memes and GIFs? Because Bush made so many more gaffes in, in terms yeah. of language than Trump yeah. ever did. And – Bush never got a break either, and so I wonder if there was some sort of conscious or unconscious choice with any future Republican president that don't ever let don't give don't let up ever don't give in because if you just keep the pressure on, you can drive down their their likability numbers. And the problem is then Republicans just start running on the fake news media, and that's really a big part of why Trump got elected. But it is dangerous because. People just get disconnected from what actually is the truth, and now yeah. there's two versions of the truth. Yeah. Well, and, and of course, that raises this whole issue of who should be the arbiter of what's true. Is Do you want Facebook deciding that this is true or false, or we don't like or do like, or we don't like Nazis, or we, you know, they can't say that what they think. Do you want Facebook to be the guys doing that? Uh, personally, I don't. You're a libertarian. I doubt you do either. Mm -hmm. and, and you have to believe in a free press, and you don't like everything you read. True or false, but um, this issue of um, uh, truth, you know, George W. Bush, uh, and sort of like Jerry Ford. Jerry Ford was actually probably the single most athletic president in the last century hmm. uh, that we have had. But the main image the media had of him was stumbling down the Air Force One steps onto the tarmac, and 
you know, he was incredibly, he was a great, he was a very graceful dancer. Of course, Betty Ford was a professional dancer. Um, you know, it's so people will make something to fit their, that's its own kind of meme. Jerry Ford, you know, stumbling down was a meme that had it existed in that time. W, um, W had no, neither one of these guys had any, um, they were not egoists. They had no public, uh, ego issue. You know, they would periodically get grumpy, you know, I'm sure to their aides and everything else. But the reality is, you know, W would joke, joke about it. You know, he'd talk about, um, uh, he had some great lines about uh, uh, misremembering and things like this because that's what he did. Right. You know? he, he joked about uh, the nuclear, you know. Nu- nuclear. Yeah, nuclear. that's right. <laughs> right. Well, you know who said uh, – whenever, whenever I hear that, it always brings me back to Jimmy Carter who used to advertise that he was a nuclear engineer. And, of course, it's nuclear. But, you know, if, if you look at how the word is spelled, N-U-C-L-E-A-R, right. not nuclear. But and a lot of people say nuclear, but but I don't necessarily expect a nuclear engineer to say it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So uh, I accidentally did something wrong on the uh, on the on the Skype. I'm sorry. So I wonder where does this go? Where, like when you hear the chatter around Washington D.C., what are the president's uh, chances of finishing a first term or even seeing a second? What what are what do you think and what do you hear? Amongst your peers in the swamp, so so it depends on who they are. I mean, I I think practical politicians of both stripes seem to what they don't see is someone who can take him on on either side, mm-hmm. and they're seeing you know wins in on his behalf. So um, or what the public reads as wins. So um, you know, my personal opinion is that, and remember, I won 18 bets on the election, predicting he would win. I, I lost, I mis, mispredicted one state, Virginia, by three points, uh, but I was pretty close. And um, uh, my personal opinion is that he's more likely to not run than he is to not win. Hmm. So uh, I, I think that uh, he, he might, in, in the next year and a half, decide he's made America great again and and doesn't have as much money as he'd like, and he wants to go off and rebuild his brand. And so, uh, to me, that's really the only thing that would keep him from doing it. Um, But otherwise, I I don't see anybody on either side. I will say one interesting and funny kind of thing that I heard last week uh, was that, or may have read in one of the local things here, is that the hope is that Mueller is going to find that there was collusion, and that uh, not only that, but that um, the results of the election were tainted by um, the Russians that they changed just enough votes in a handful of states like Minnesota to uh, have given the election to Trump when it should have gone to Hillary. So he's an illegitimate president and Pence is an illegitimate vice president. And when the new Congress comes back, the Democrats are going to win it, which I also don't believe is going to happen. And they will um, uh, elect Hillary Clinton to be Speaker of the House. And most people don't realize you don't have to be a congressman to be elected Speaker. That can be hmm. the 436th member of the Congress, which actually, I don't know why people don't do that periodically. But um, And so, um, and then Trump and Pence will be bumped out because the election was illegitimate, and Hillary, third in line, will become president. 
So that's the kind of story we get here in the swamp. Wishful thinking in t- 10x. <laughs> uh, you you see that in the the left blogosphere too, and yeah. I'm seeing so many different strains of thinking and conspiracy thinking, conspiratorial thinking in the left right now and it reminds me so much of two years into barack obama's presidency and going to tea party meetings and oh, talking yeah. to people on the right and you know, the birther stuff because people people may not remember that like there were the seeds of the tea party at in 2008 with with his election and the jeremiah yeah. Wright stuff but the tea party didn't really kick off until about 2010 and the That's the right. whole resistance movement to me right-wingers get so, people on the right get so bent out of shape about the left right now and how they're acting, and it's like, guys, we were all kind of doing that back in 2010. Oh, oh there's no question. <laughs> you know? And, and, and uh, I mean, this this stuff's been going on in one form or another. It just gets worse periodically. <laughs> um, actually, speaking of the tea, tea uh, party, I, I'm, I'm one of these people who sort of hopes that Jim Jordan does get elected uh, speaker for the simple reason that uh, he needs to see what it's like to try to lead yeah, uh, and and again, that kind of reminds me of the, the Carter administration, which was a bunch of people who had never been in government, and there was this whole there was a whole left side of the aisle, you know, Joan Claybrook and people like that, for example, on on safety, who were viewed as radical in those days, and they went into the administration, uh, into positions of power, and I I think it was a huge eye opener. You know, nothing is as easy as we all like to think it is, and I think Trump has found that out, just like everyone else. The difference is that he has found a way to go over the top of the of the of the media and the Congress and um, business to get his message out to enough people to to get him where he wants to go. I even if he doesn't consciously know it, I think he knows that he can't win in the traditional way in terms of he can't govern and he knows that. And so the only way to maintain his power is to stoke the base. Right. I, I agree, and I and as I say, I I think it's going to be sufficient to to uh, keep the Congress in Republican hands, uh, you know, by a couple votes probably. But. So, so you think that they're going to win the House and the Senate again? Yes, I do. E- yeah, even I, with I some do. of the the resurgence of the blue wave. Well, the right now the wave uh, is at about the gap is about seven and a half percent between Republican and Democrat, um, uh, and that is at the cusp of a wave. I heard Charlie Cook at the uh, Economic Club of Washington, one of those other Washington swamp type uh, institutions. <laughs> and, um, you know, he he said that there were um, a couple ways to think about it. Um, th- there, there could be a wave, but there was also a seawall on the Republican side that, that redistricting had really um, compacted and, and set up enough districts um, that would be impossible to flip. Um, the, the gap in that seawall is the, that we have so many, 29 or 30 now, um, Republicans retiring, which is a big chunk, and, um, and so many of the people uh, on the purple states like Barbara Comstock across the river here, who's a, really a fabulous congresswoman, and she does a great job, and, but she's a massive target. And um, but 
so you have the seawall on the one hand, and then you have this wave on the other, and it may just wash up and slosh back down. And hmm. uh, my my personal opinion is it's going to wash up and slosh back down. And it's going to take a lot with it, but I'm going to be I, I'll be surprised. But you know, we we'll be talking about this, Chris, <laughs> as we get closer to the election, and maybe you and I can do one of these uh, uh, one of these sometime on uh, just look down state by state and do the numbers and. Have some fun with that. Yes, uh, thanks to our Patreon supporters, I subscribe to the Charlie uh, Cook the Cook Report, which is a yeah. website that basically yeah. he and David Wasserman, uh, specifically on the House, go through and and rate all of the the various House races. Uh, that's really interesting. I think um, uh, Jonathan Chait, I think it is, is a writer for one of these liberal magazines, very liberal writer. But he basically was asked, like he jokingly said yes when asked are you glad trump won for ratings and for readership <laughs> yeah and it's yeah. and it's true i mean my my former co-host always used to say like could you imagine how boring it would be if hillary clinton were president like every day it's it's if oh, you if completely. you set the news at 8 a.m. it's different by 8 p.m. you have to do a new show well and and remember and of course we'd still be talking about a lot of the same things so she promised to, to not Finished TTP and and issues with NAFTA and blah blah blah, so yeah, uh, we just have a different take on it, I suspect. So, um, <clears throat> let's see. Let's. I, I want to ask. Uh, do you want to talk about tar- <clears throat> tariffs real quick? I mean, you may have an insight, having dealt with a lot of trade issues over the course of your career. What is your opinion of his tariff strategy? I, I get the sense that he's putting these in place to try and deal, be a deal maker, but. You know, he certainly believes in protectionism, and that's part of why he won. I mean, what's your view of the tariffs that he's placing on? on uh, well, I, I think that's, you know, that's one issue that certainly <clears throat> generates a lot of um, uh, differences. That's that's a style, not an outcomes kind of issue, I suspect. The, um, you know, hardly, I don't know anyone who doesn't think the Chinese are, are IP thieves and are erecting all sorts of, uh, uh, soft trade barriers who and, aren't you know right you you, you accidentally know. said are so let me let me say you that aren't thieves aren't aren't, aren't? Yeah. <laughs> oh yeah that's right i meant to say are <laughs> right they they are yeah you had to like uh I, I meant to say wouldn't yes be. <laughs> wouldn't yes who said there was somebody i can't remember i'll think of it in a minute who just did a great um comedy thing on that the other day but in any case the uh the uh so you know they are. They they. I you know, I have a tech company. I went to China two or three times to try to do a deal, and they basically the fourth time I went, they had my tech my technology. They'd stolen it, and so um, the concepts in any case. And the um, so it's all about how you go about doing a deal. And his he is totally one deal at a time. I mean that's a real estate kind of deal. If you're doing real estate, you may have to bring in the permitting guys and this and that, but you really do one big deal, one deal, and then you fill in the gaps and that's what he's doing. I, you know, the, the, um, uh, I will say some of it's hypocritical though, too. I, the, the fact that the farmers who voted overwhelmingly for Trump are whining about the tariffs, uh, is ludicrous. I would absolutely not give them twelve billion dollars worth of handouts. You know, and in 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 an old in the old days, they would have said, "Oh, we don't take handouts." Well, of course, that's why they're getting milk milk um, <laughs> quotas and subsidies for this, and they changed it from a subsidy to an insurance program, so it wasn't a subsidy, and blah blah blah. But uh, the swamp, by the way, goes all the way out into the hinterland. So, oh yes. 
No, being from an agriculture state, trust me, we know. (laughs) Yeah, there you go. Um, And then you have the the car manufacturers who don't want any tariffs whatsoever. And uh, on cars, uh, because their prices are going way up because of steel, I think I read, you know, prices might rise on the basic steel by as much as 20%. Now, the U.S. market, of course, is taking advantage of the fact that we've got all these tariffs on everyone else. Um, and uh, I think I read that there will be something like 600,000 job losses to save about 30,000 jobs in steel. So it's it's crazy. But um, but that has been the pres- the the problem for previous presidents and trade guys. And you know we've, we we talk about trade issues forever. So I like a lot of people I know am. Um, you're, you know, between a rock and a hard place. You don't like the way they do it, but you know what has been done doesn't work or hasn't worked sufficiently or it's taken way too long. Right. Um, although, again, I have a friend who was, was under the Treasury and the Clinton administration and, and, uh, and, and there now uh, negotiating. And what he would say is that um, – the trade process is a continually evolving process. So you, you're you in continuous negotiations and you negotiate a point about how to treat something, a, a piece of intellectual property and or how intellectual property is treated. And then you immediately start renegotiating it and all the other treaties to which you're a party. So you're actually evolving them as you go. So nothing is hard and fixed. Even NAFTA, all these others have been – being negotiated from the in you know the first day they were signed. So and, so so you could compare it to Obamacare. The second Obamacare was passed, they immediately started talking about passing fixes for the yeah, bill. So that's right. okay, because so, that's something because I don't think people really understand how those trade negotiations work, and and that's something that doesn't surprise me that you'd immediately the second something like that is passed, you're continually tweaking it. And well, and you do it in one treaty and you uh-huh. move it into all of the others. Mm. So you're learning. And, of course, what the the mantra of the politicians is, well, NAFTA is 30 years old or whatever it is, and it's out of date. Or this treaty is out of date or that. The reality is it being updated every single day hmm. uh, simultaneously. As you solve one issue, you can – plop that into another treaty that's been sitting there for 30 years. So so they may uh, not be changing the text of the treaty, but they're changing maybe policies governed by the treaty? They can change policies. They can do side letters. They can do all sorts of things. And, and as you know, for the most part, treaties are not actually ratified by the Senate these days. They, they become executive kinds of agreements. So. Uh, okay. That makes total sense. So let's move yeah. on to our se- second topic, of which you are one of the world's most foremost experts in my opinion <laughs> uh which is uh, another trade related issue it's called the jones act yeah so can you explain what the jones act is and what your relationship to it is so let me make a categorical statement you cannot find and i think there's a book about the swamp literally um that was written 10 or 15 years ago by someone from cato if i recall you cannot find another law which is a greater illustration of the swamp than the Jones Act. And, and what the Jones Act is, is it was passed, uh, it was a, a couple of words inserted in uh, the maritime law that was passed in 1920 or so, 1920, 1927, so on, 
um, after World War One, where we had no fleet, and the fact that we had no major commercial fleet became an impediment to in the war. It was intended to rebuild uh, an American fleet and shipbuilding and all those things. Um, the Jones Act uh, is a provision that basically linked a diff- bunch of different parts together to require that if you're going to sail from one American city to another in a boat, it has to be an American built boat built in the United States. It has to be only American sailors. Um, that makes it American flag. Uh, those are part of the provisions requirements for American flag, and it can only be owned by Americans. So um, the people who support that are the guys who own the ships, uh, and uh, they claim that it was passed for the purposes of national security, which I'll go back to in a minute, uh, to give us – to help keep these massive, fabulous shipyards in busy business – between wars, commercial shipyards, um, to create a big, massive fleet so you can have a bunch of sailors who during war can jump on these commercial boats and sail them back and forth with supplies, um, and um, and that it's good for America too. So um, the reality is it has never been any of those things, <laughs> and nor was it passed uh, in order to support um, – uh, shipping. It was actually passed to support railroads, ironically. Uh, uh, Michener, uh, who wrote um, Chesapeake and Hawaii and all these things, Alaska, in his book Alaska, wrote about this, that basically Senator Jones, Wesley Jones from uh, uh, Washington State, um, received complaints that um, uh, Chinese and Canadian ships were were taking uh, traffic from the railroads going to Alaska. Uh, they were moving, you know, they were they were cheaper. Ships are in the order of transportation. The cheapest mode is always shipping, hmm. and then railroads and trucks, you know, depending on the market, may flip in there. And then planes, of course, are the most expensive. So. Um, so he inserted the words that pulled everything together into this linked requirement of built, bought, manned, owned, operated ships. And, um, uh, you know, just to put this in context, uh, uh, in the 1950s, we had uh, some, I think it was 60-some thousand mariners, and today we're down to a handful of thousands hmm. because we have almost no Jones Act ships. And the people who support it uh, own shipping companies that ship to Alaska, to Hawaii, to Guam, and to Puerto Rico, which is why all of a sudden you've heard about it. So after the hurricane, um, they asked to be um, relieved of the Jones Act requirements so that they could get supplies more quickly to Puerto Rico. The The assertion was that the Jones Act was making it uh, hard to get supplies and they needed to have foreign ships doing it. Um, Honestly, that was not a great example because Puerto Rico is largely served by international ships. There's no law that says an international ship can't come to your city or drop off or pick up cargo. They just can't carry it or pick it up from another American city. So let me ask a clarification. So if you are a ship, are you registered via international law or United States law or is it – 
Is there a distinction between the two? So when you say there there aren't a lot of Jones ships left, that and, and based on international ships going into Puerto Rico, I hear that maybe you're you're registering and and operating under different sets of rules. If you're a if you're a ship, you're not really. No, okay. you're not operating different rules. The, the, while the U.S. Coast Guard has its own uh, set of rules, which the standards are slightly different. It might be like the fire hydrant on a ship is on the left side, not the right side. So maybe the way uh, to put it is you're not an Indiana car or an Illinois car. If you're driving in Florida, you're you're operating under Florida's laws if you're a car in that particular territory. You, you operate under the laws of the, that you're in, although the, the flag under which you read, you're registered, um, it's, those standards are the ones that you have to abide by, uh, certain manning standards and all the other things. There are international standards, which everybody has to abide by if they're going to be an international ship shipping. Uh, so um, this, this is a highly complicated law. It creates a massive emotions. Uh, when I was uh, maritime commissioner, I tried to – I said we should get rid of it. You know, but, And the uh, debate going on right now is you have a handful of congressmen and senators who are, quote, expert, uh, but who are largely people who are paid off via campaign contributions from the shipbuilding or the maritime unions or one of those to preserve this law. And, you know, the unions believe that it has saved their jobs. And they believe this in the face of all the evidence that says it's exactly the opposite. And here's why. Building a ship in the United States, a large ship that can go into deep water and is self-propelled, meaning it has an engine on it, um, we cost three to five times much as any other place on the planet. And part of that is because um, – it's not because American labor is not good. Uh, I will say part of it is that uh, I think our, our management doesn't manage as well as it might. Um, but the, the main reason is we don't build enough to get the expertise. So, you know, somebody out you know, in the Midwest in an auto factory, they get better every day. Every car they do, that person and that company get better. But shipbuilding, you're building one, you know, every two years at best. And the only reason you're building it is because – and they're usually oil tankers – is because the law requires that they're American built and they have to be built. That's that. You know, that's how they do it. American – because it's so expensive to build a ship here, people don't here don't want to buy them. And so they let their ships get older and older and older. And our ships are – our fleet, our so-called fleet, the handful left of these ships that are American-built and Jones Act, um, they're like 10, 15 years older than, the, than they should be to even be floating. Some of these ships are 45 years old, <laughs> and, and, and that creates other issues in and of itself. There's safety issues. Um, you know, I, I had a friend who had one of these ships that broke in a storm like 10 years ago off the, the water and, and <clears throat> seamen drowned and they had massive expense to try to rescue the rest. Um, the, but the fact that the ships are so old means that they actually are less efficient. They burn more fuel. That costs them more. They require more people on board. That costs them more. Oh, and oh, by the way, American sailors cost – you know, two or three times more than somebody else. They are not more skilled. They like to say that's because we're so much better and we don't want to be paid slave wages. But you realize a, a merchant mariner uh, makes, on average, 
four to five times what the average American makes and gets six months off every year. And oh, by the way, you're paying a subsidy for his salary. So the average, you know, the average taxpayer pays in his taxes a subsidy for a guy who works six months a year uh, for a salary which is three, four, five times higher than his. So it's and you know at some point we could play with the numbers and and uh, and I'm happy to we can put some of this online. You know, Chris, we should do that, and and I'm also happy to put on both sides. Uh, uh, online as well. But Cato has really, the Cato Institute, which is libertarian, has done some terrific work, a guy named Colin Graybowen. And he and others in Washington are really starting to take this on. Heritage has always been opposed to it. Um, Senator McCain has been a major opponent. Um, I, I headed a group years ago called the Jones Act Reform Coalition. And um, our position was that if you could eliminate the requirement that you build ships here, we'd start buying more ships and they'd be newer ships and they'd be safer and and then shipyards would start to learn from repairing these ships. And uh, but that was viewed as a threat. You know, it's this is like uh, this is, uh, you know, I'm trying to think of some idol, some God somewhere that the Jones Act is the holy, holy of holiest uh, of the of the maritime industry. And yep. it's very anti-consumer. And the current debate, Duncan Hunter is one of the worst uh, congressmen on this issue. He, his dad was too. Um, they, they both, you know, they come from a shipbuilding uh, district, which ironically only builds oil tankers and not very many these days because they're so expensive. And, uh, and just to give you a figure, so, you know, a tanker, a big tanker may cost $30, 35000000 million these days. In the U.S., it costs one hundred and ten. dollars Wow. And and think about this if you do any finance, because it costs so much, they can never sell it on the world market. They can only sell it to another Jones Act company, which means they can't get financing. Um, They have to get they have to get financing specialized that allows them to hang onto an asset that, you know, depreciates over the same period as an international one. and, And cost them too much to finance. So it's it's a it's a terrible mess. And and the net effect the net effect is exactly what the law was designed to do. It it basically makes shipping, domestic shipping so much more expensive than it should be that it takes that railroads and trucks can steal the cargo and put them on the road and on land more cheaply. And uh, you know, years ago in the late 90s, I, I headed a group that came to me. They came to me to recruit me to do this um, of farmers from North Carolina, hog farmers, and grain producers in the Midwest, and salt producers in the Great Lakes, and, and mining and timber from the Pacific Northwest, because they could no longer ship. Um, the hog farmers uh, couldn't get grain on ships from the the uh, central part of the country through the lakes or anything like that in sufficient supply. They couldn't sell their soybeans to other parts of the com- country because they didn't have the ships to put them in. Um, so they were buying. So we're losing soybean markets to the Brazilians and grain to, you know, Latin America and South America. And we lose, we, we've lost our timber market. There are, there are certainly tariff issues in timber, but the real reason we've lost it is because it's cheaper for the Canadians to ship it to us than for us to ship it to ourselves. 
So. I, I see a pattern here in, in the steel uh, tariffs yes, that we were talking about earlier. Is, totally. Where unions yeah. and special interests basically pass laws that are protecting them, prices rise, industry gets gutted, and then they, they want to bail out from the government to help subsidize out. their well, bad here, behavior. Here's a, one last funny story. So when we were doing this, one of the groups that came to me was a group of cattlemen from Hawaii. And uh, most people don't know it, but they raise uh, uh, beef cattle in Hawaii, and they're actually trying to uh, brand it, and I think they've done that. And, you know, they, they have beautiful uh, grasslands on hillsides and everything else. And, and so the cattlemen in Hawaii um, had historically brought the corn and grain and stuff over to Hawaii in a grain specialized ship to carry grain. And... Um, to fatten the livestock to, you know, we all like our meat mar marbleized and all the rest of that. And, um, and then there were no more grain carriers, so they couldn't ship the grain to Hawaii. So they decided to ship the cows to the Midwest, to the West coast, and then railroad them out to fat stockyards. So, um, they did that for a while. Uh, and then there were no more cattle carriers, which are specialized ships. And um, they had to be Jones Act because it was from Hawaii. And then um, the shipping line, Matson Navigation, which has is a Jones Act carrier and, and has opposed all of these changes because they have a monopoly market in essence, um, proposed that they essentially cut containers in half and call them cow-tainers <laughs> and put the little calves in the containers and um, and then ship them over to the West Coast that way. And, of course, the cattlemen didn't like that because they're not specialized. And, and the ship ship companies, the, the carriers, would say, well, wait, these work fine. I don't care if you don't like it. It's fine. You're the customer. It doesn't matter what you think. So, so they actually, the farmers, the cattlemen, actually started shipping calves in empty backhauls of airplanes. <laughs> So they was a flying, flying cow. <laughs> and and um, I mean, it's real. And uh, I we can post one of those stories for you, too. Yeah, that is that is spectacular. I, I had no idea. You know, you, you've mentioned, hey, let's talk about the Jones Act a couple times. And now I'm like, man, I'm glad we did, because this is just like a classic <laughs> story of, you know, nearly 100 years of just nonsense from the government. I mean, well, we had amazing. a we had this interesting thing this week. Uh, Duncan Hunter conspired with um, some of the Jones Act carriers to produce a, a fake, a fictitious report that said, and, and what, you know, what the Jones Act does, it makes shipping more expensive. So like Hawaii has massively higher prices on so many things, and Puerto Rico does, and Guam, and Alaska, and, and they could actually have regular prices if everybody could serve them, but only certain people can serve them. But in any case, so... Um, Contrary to what people in Puerto Rico know, um, they produced a report uh, that was uh, no doubt funded by the maritime unions, indirectly or directly, that said there was no difference in the prices at a Walmart in the selected products that they had picked, and, and they picked a handful of things randomly, despite the fact that the index actually shows that Puerto Rico uh, pricing is about 18% above the mainland. And, and that can all be traced to the Jones Act. So if you take a market basket, it's going to be 18% higher. So they made this fake report. And then, and then uh, Hunter, Hunter's office released or uh, alluded to the report 
a day or two before it was even released. So they knew the results of this fake report before it was released. And then yesterday or Wednesday, I guess, they held a hearing, uh, quote, hearing to hear the results. And of course, no opponents were allowed uh, and probably no uh, media that didn't approve of it. And, you know, we may want to put that online, too. So Lots of why don't representatives from Hawaii and I mean, obviously, we know why representatives from Puerto Rico and Guam don't get a say. Um, but like Hawaii specifically does have representation. Why don't they just scream and kick until this thing gets repealed? Uh, well, you know, Dan Inouye was the senator for, from Hawaii for many years. And he uh, – well, it's funny. So um, uh, uh, when I was really active in this stuff years ago, and I'm sort of being drawn into it now, uh, I had this conversation with Trent Lott who had retired or was retiring uh, as majority leader. And he he laughingly said to me, he said, well, Rob, the Jones Act's not – first of all, he said, you've made more money for more lawyers in this town than anybody I know talking about this issue because, of course, they spent a lot of money on lawyers to uh, fight it and combat it. They kind of outspent our group 10 to 1 or more. And then um, – and he said, the Jones Act's not going away till I'm gone and um, – who was the Democratic senator? The other one, um, I can see his face. But anyway, the Democratic senator's gone, and and Dan Inouye is gone, and um, uh, the senator from Alaska then, who died in an airplane crash later. Um, Ted Stevens? Yeah, Stevens. Yeah, Stevens. And um, he said, until the four of us are gone, it's not going to go away. Well, they're all gone. <laughs> and uh, Bro, John Bro. So Bro and Trent Lott are the only two left, and um, – they're not in the Congress or the Senate anymore, so who knows? And there, there are a lot of people who are taking a second look at this. Uh, my prediction, my prediction, is that um, Trump will look at this and his supporters, and they'll say, "What's wrong with requiring American ships and American steel?" Yeah, absolutely. Uh, make America great again and rebuild shipbuilding with one ship a year. That ain't going to happen. All right, so let's let's move on. We're, we're chunking this into segments. Instead of kind of going through in the first episode, we were going through uh, Rob's history. Uh, I want to segment it out a little bit so we can cover some current stuff, but also you know still kind of pick his brain from uh, the 40, 45 years, 35, we'll do the math later, that he's been in Washington, D.C. <laughs> uh, so I want to ask you to tell a story every week. Um, it can be current or it can be from your past that is just – Really interesting, a fly on the wall type moment uh, from your time in the swamp. So, what do you have this week? Well, I actually haven't thought too far ahead on this, but you know, I, I think that one of the things that you know, you know, Washington D.C. is the number one destination for millennials now, mm. and um, there are a couple of reasons for that. I think first of all, it's it's it is a very sophisticated, worldly city, but it's not like New York. I mean, it's it's small enough that you can have neighborhoods that you can know people in it and you can see them every day and you, you know you can walk your dogs i got a i've got a whole foods across the street from me which is bigger than any in probably in the entire new york state and certainly bigger than anything in new york city I, I've, so i've actually spent a week um or a weekend at a conference and i stayed at a hotel just around the corner from you and I had the best time. I, the, some of the restaurants that I went to were amazing. Like th the stores were all great. Like it's such a. And I was walking around going, I could really enjoy living here. It'd be great. 
I mean, well, it, it is. Would. It's a very and fantastic. Uh, it's a very it, Washington D.C. is a great city. Well, and you know, the reality is people do have opinions, but they're highly educated, and they they um, and I think so. It's 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 tending young. It's millennial. It's um, uh, it's diverse. It's it's one of the most diverse cities on the planet. Uh, you walk down the street and you'll hear 10 different languages as you walk by physically, racially, ethnically, very diverse. So, um, so you can find just about anything you want. And I, I happen to, my wife and I downsized about five years ago from a very, very large house to a, to a condo that's maybe 2,800 square feet, which is still big by most standards. I think it's probably bigger than average house, but it felt a lot smaller when we moved in. And we're smack in the middle of Logan Circle, which is six blocks in the White House. And, uh, you know, we have probably a hundred and said to have 160 plus restaurants and bars within five or six walking blocks of where we live. So it's, and, you know, it's young, you know, I'm, I am 68, but I feel like I'm much younger because everybody I associate with is under 30. <laughs> so, uh, and, but anyway, so as a city, it's 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 very it's a it's a great place to live. Um, for young people, it's also a really good place to get a job. Um, you can get so much of your you can be given so much more um, exp- of. Uh, uh, authority and or maybe not authority so much, but you can get a lot of responsibility at a very young age. I mean, when I was, uh, you know, we talked about the EPA, Environmental Protection Agency, last time. When I was there, I was 23, I, right out of college. I had a great education, and I was given a huge responsibility to write regulations governing the timber industry. And I hardly knew anything about the timber industry. And uh, I mean, I had consultants and all that. And you know, there, but it's good for young people and it's good for people who just want to live. I mean, a lot of people from the surrounding suburbs are selling the houses my age and moving into the city because you can walk everywhere and do all these kinds of fun things. Uh, the, you know, my, the, the Chesapeake Bay and, and beaches are two hours away and the mountains are two hours in the other direction. And, uh, you know, they're vineyards. And so it's, 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 it's kind of, it's fun. They're farms. People have farms here. Um, but it's like when I go to New Jersey, I never, I never thought of the fact that New Jersey may be one of the most farming intensive states in the country, but I sure is, I don't think of it that way until you actually see it. <laughs> I was in Philly this past week and I was in the market. I know you were. I was there for lunch. Yeah, I know. We just, we <laughs> crossed each other. We crossed. Uh, and I was, I was in, I was eating at Denix in the market and I look over at, at this fruit stand and they've got New Jersey tomatoes on sale and I'm like, gross. <laughs> but then I thought about it. I was <laughs> like, actually, okay. they're really good. Yeah. It's a pass. <laughs> it's a very pastoral state except for the North, you know, just, you yeah, hope right. that sludge doesn't come down well, the river. And they have Princeton. Yeah. The sludge. Well, you mean political sludge or what? All of it. <laughs> <laughs> but anyway, so in terms of events, so I just, you know, and we, there are a lot of different things. I mean, I was here. Care- careful with the Mike wrestling there. Yeah, sorry about that. I was uh, across. I remember standing across in the White House the day Nixon resigned. I was in Lafayette Park, and um, and you know he went to the executive office building and across in the White House, and and people. One of the indelible images is of people hanging on the White House gates like vultures. It really was like vultures, and he walked across, and uh, you know you could see him, and so things like that happen here all the time and you know we from my condo window i'm on the seventh floor i see uh, you know the big uh, white house helicopters fly by and things like that but um 
one of the most fun things that I, I remember from my early years here was I was here during the centennial, bicentennial in uh, 1976, and I was working for the Ford campaign, and we all received invitations to be on the lawn of the White House um, during that celebration and the fireworks. And it was probably one of the most spectacular firework displays ever. Uh, they, of course, went all out, and they put fireworks on these huge barges on the Potomac. And, you know, you're on the White House lawn, and people are picnicking and walking around, and their families, and, uh, you know, the Marine band playing, and um, and then the fireworks going off, at, you know, when it hit dark. So th those are the kinds of things that you just – Every regular people can experience. You know, I was a kid. I was 26. I mean, I definitely was in the campaign. I had a, a, an important role and all that, but um, uh, I wasn't a cabinet secretary or anything like that. And I certainly wasn't rich. Um, <laughs> you know, so um, you know, ordinary people can experience some really extraordinary things here. And history is happening here all the time. That's what I always tell people. They think, oh, it's, it's the establishment and those people, and it's like. All you got to do is just show up and keep showing up and eventually your establishment. I mean, it, that happens in the Libertarian Party. Like people look at Nick Sarwark and they're like, oh, he's so establishment. He's the chair of the party. It's like, yeah, Nick just has been showing up for a decade. He started yeah. off He started off nobody. Then people kept seeing him over and over. And then all of a sudden he's significant. I mean, that that that's well, the beautiful thing about right. American government is that can happen in American government as well. Well, and, and this is, you know, this is the tug and pull here, the, um, you know, the John Boltons and people like that have been here their entire lives. So are they swamp or are they not swamp? Right. They've been in the middle of it up to their hip boots. Um, and uh, I think that's, you, you want people who kind of know what they're doing. But as you know, we talked about it last time that some people do a good job and some people do a job and some people sleep when they're at their right. desk and, and um, you want people who can make the wheels run. Um, you know, the notion of a deep state, we haven't talked about that a lot there. I do think there probably are institutional things which are hard to change. And you, if you want to call that deep state, that's, that's fine. And there, there's certainly uh, sets of people who are institutionalized uh, in these institutions who might be like that too. But Anyway, it's a, it's, a, it's a fun city. So speaking of that, our final segment is uh, – our second to last segment is going to be recommendations. So everybody eventually gets to Washington, D.C., especially if you're a political nerd, if you enjoy politics. You have to go to Washington, D.C. You have to go and experience it. And when you do, uh, we want Rob to give you some tips on what, what you should see, <laughs> where you should go, where you should drink. Uh, and because, you know, you heard them. There's 160 restaurants in Indianapolis total, let alone within five <laughs> blocks of walking distance of me. So, so so you think I should maybe publish my uh, restaurant list? Y y yes, you should at least work on it. But so, so <laughs> I, I have one. <laughs> what is your, yeah, I would totally, I would totally publish that. <laughs> so what is your recommendation for this episode? Well, okay. So I'm. I think I'm going to start with a with an area, not a specific restaurant. Um, it's it's a funny thing where I'm living now in Washington. Um, I would never have come over here ten years ago. I would have been afraid to walk here. Hmm. Afraid I'd get mugged. 
uh, it was burned out for years. Some people who are listening may remember the race riots in Washington in the 60s. Probably not many who are listening do, but I was certainly in my 20s then. And uh, fit, well, I was in my, not in my 20s, I was in my teens. But um, so this area until about 10, 12 years ago, you had to, there were parts that were pretty seedy and uh, but today, 14th Street, and I'm at the intersection of 15th Street and P, uh, 14th Street is really a destination uh, for f- food. And it's, it's funny. Uh, I have a lot of friends in McLean, Virginia, which is a suburb over the Key Bridge and out in Virginia, and in Georgetown, who, uh, who w- when I said we were moving here, thought I was crazy and I'd have to have a cop at my door every day. <laughs> Um, and, and when they come into town often, um, they'll, um, they'll go to certain restaurants that they read about and think that they, they're so cool. And I will say, this is probably the most hip neighborhood in town. I, it is, but, um, it's as safe as you could be around here. Um, 14th street, uh, kind of, if you're a tourist, you'll read about U street. Uh, U Street and 14th Street intersect. Washington is a perfect grid except for diagonals. Um, and it goes down to, um, from U Street through, you know, backwards through w, to T and R and S and O and blah, 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 down to Thomas Circle, which is at about uh, Massachusetts Avenue and uh, N, thereabouts. Um, in that, it, if you're a tourist, you want to just start walking up one side and come back down the other. Um, there are galleries, there's food, there, uh, it's highly diverse ethnic food. Um, I cannot, I, I'm, I have to admit, I'm having a hard time keeping up with the new restaurants. My <laughs> wife and I were walking to another restaurant, uh, about six blocks away, walked up 14th street from the bottom the other day and realized there was not only a new Indian restaurant called Pappy, which is very cool. P-A-P-P-E. And you might want to look that up, um, does Northern Indian. But right next door, there's a new bar with a music venue. And, and I thought I knew every bar there was. <laughs> so uh, I'm actually going there tonight. Um, but um, so if you start walking up, you, you know, walking up 14th Street, Pappy is great. Um, there's a terrific little coffee shop called Slipstream. A friend of mine, uh, Ryan Fleming, who's an entrepreneur, owns that and has opened a new one on the waterfront. And maybe another time we'll talk about the waterfront. Uh, you go past that to... Uh, there's Ethiopian. I'm not a big fan of Ethiopian, but uh, a lot of young people really like it. A lot of people I know who are uh, international uh, keep crossing all of us. Well, there's a great beer uh, place called Birch and Barley with a great bar upstairs <clears throat> uh, called Church Key. Uh, and we know what a church key is, right? Yeah, I, it's the I, I don't. Flipper. You don't? No, no. I'm a teetotaler. Oh well, that's the little—that's the little metal thing you flip the top of the beer bottle off. Oh, you know, the, the, okay, the, I didn't know that. Yeah, right. So that's a church key, and then you keep going up, and you hit uh, 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 a great um, pizza restaurant would be uh, 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 Eto, and then across the street is the one restaurant that everybody in McLean and Georgetown would know out here, which is Le Diplomat, which is a Stephen Starr restaurant. Stephen Starr has a very famous restaurant in New York City, and it's a fabulous bistro it's a french bistro um noisy uh and and i've never you know they're really very good at what they do but it is a french bistro 
Yeah. Then, uh, I mean, you just keep walking up. I could name every restaurant walking up the street. Um, my favorite bar I'm going to Monday is called uh, The Left Door. And that would be up the street further on 14th and T. And uh, you, you turn right and it's, there are three doors standing there. Uh, one of them is a, is a, uh, a, a laundry, a capital valet. And then there are two doors. And it's the what, Chris? The left door, oh. right? <laughs> that makes <laughs> it's sense. A, it's a speakeasy, and <laughs> so anyway, so so you might want to have your listeners say, "I'm going to D.C. and I want this or that." And and you know, I do have a list actually, and I I um, I give them stars or negatives or whatever. Uh, and my wife and I really like to eat. We go all around town. If you could see my stomach, you would believe that. See, I don't uh, believe that because you you are very trim and you do not look sixty eight. If if you like, you go to your LinkedIn and take a look at, at Rob's photo. <laughs> like you don't look sixty eight even remotely, but you're living the dream. My dream is to never like I like to cook and I like to eat at home, but really I'd prefer to just go out every meal and go to a tr- nice, cool, trendy restaurant. And it is interesting because we have the same thing going on here in Indianapolis right now yeah, where I read that. there's just a new trendy restaurant happening that are opening every week here. And you could probably go six months and not go to the same restaurant uh, oh, because of the scene here. And I, I'm, I, this sounds phenomenal. So, yeah, if you're going to Washington, D.C. and you want recommendations of you know, uh, anything, uh, where to stay – what to see, where to well, eat, I'm where to drink. Well, I'm not sure I can tell you where to stay, but I can tell you what to eat and drink. My, by the way, my son is a chef in in Australia, okay, and I'm a really good cook, so I, so I I like to both eat and go out. <laughs> yes, it's central. Like I I've been doing all this traveling, uh, and I've just I just travel to eat. I I'm about I may never be able to eat a Philly cheesesteak again after the uh, four that I had, <laughs> but uh, yeah, it's it, Washington is a great town just to go out and and just you know. Sit there, and I I remember going in two thousand and three to CPAC, mm. and going to there's a famous you restaurant. Were what twelve years old? Or yeah, what? exactly. I was in college, <laughs> uh, and so I was. It was right off of the Capitol, and there's like a famous restaurant that everybody goes to, and I I just remember being twenty two, maybe twenty one, and Is sitting at the monocle. I think so. That sounds about right. And like you just see all of the famous politicians that you've read about for years in this restaurant. You're yeah. just like, wow. So I don't yeah. know. I've always been a political geek. And, and even though I'm a libertarian and I'm anti-power, I still just enjoy – I've always enjoyed politics. And, it, and it's such a fun town to go and, and just kind of give context to what you read about every day. Well, and, and I'm going to do one little piece of editorial, which is um, – you know, we saw, for example, Ivanka Trump and her husband at a restaurant we really like uh, several months ago. And, you know, I'm at a table with, I think I had six or eight people and she was at a table. My Australian friend leans over and says, oh, I think that's all Ivanka behind <laughs> you. And I got up and went to the bathroom just to see. And it was. <laughs> and the nice thing about Washington historically is no matter whether you agree or disagree with somebody, you leave them alone. Right. And people totally totally left them alone. Yeah. I mean, she was like eight inches behind my chair and I would never have thought to say anything. Um, so I'm, I will say I'm personally kind of appalled by this m- movement now, Maxine Waters and the rest to harass these people. You know, you don't have to, you don't like them, but people deserve some uh, privacy. 
in this yeah, town. That's uh, yeah. a really bad thing in politics these days. When you start giving yourself <clears throat> yourself license to be indecent, like it's one thing if you're indecent and then you go, oh, I shouldn't have done that. It's another thing to give yourself license because you you don't know where that ends up. You don't know where that takes you. And it usually doesn't. And then the other side starts doing it. And then that takes us all to a bad place. And tomorrow you'll be sitting there in, in some administration that other people don't like and they'll do the same to you. That's exactly right. All yeah. right. Well, let's, let's uh, end it with any corrections or letters that we might have received. We have not received any letters, but we did have a correction from – the first episode of The Swamp, uh, there are a couple things uh, that you'd like to correct that we want to make sure that we get this stuff accurate. This is something I may incorporate into the big show, the the regular show, and every episode do one of these uh, little corrections or letters. So please, if you hear anything wrong on We Are Libertarians, write in, editor at com. So Rob, what mistakes have we made over the course of the last two episodes? Well, the one that comes to mind immediately is I referred to uh, one of David Petraeus's, General Petraeus's aides, is something like uh, uh, David McMullen, but it's actually David Kilcullen, and he is a brilliant guy who uh, actually helped write the um, uh, asymmetric warfare uh, plans for the military and uh, and was the guy who figured out the, how to deal with the Shia-Sunni divide in uh, the war effort and really helped uh, turn everything around with Petraeus. And so uh, I'm sorry about that, David. <laughs> <laughs> I don't – I would be surprised if he listened, but I hope he does. You never know. Uh, you never know. All right. Well, thanks so much. This has been uh, – I thought this was uh, really enjoyable, and I learned a ton uh, on this episode. So thank you for the time. Yep. Thank you. All right. Thanks, Rob. And we'll see you on the third episode of The Swamp soon. And uh, we will be back in just a few days with another episode of We Are Libertarians. And until then, we'll see you next time.